You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message, recorded live from our Brighton campus. There's this story in Mark chapter 8 about a blind man and Jesus. And the story goes that some friends of this blind man, they bring him to Jesus and they start asking, they start begging Jesus to touch the man. And so Jesus takes the man outside of the village and he spits on his eyes and he says, can you see anything? He says, not anymore. You just spat in my eyes. No. <laughs> he says, so the man says, I can see people, but they look like trees walking around. And so then Jesus places his hands on the man's eyes a second time and his sight is fully restored. It's a pretty short story, but it's really powerful. Um, This man who was blind can now see because of an encounter with Jesus. It's funny that there's, there's those two elements to it. The first time he can see people like trees walking around, and the second time he can see clearly. So just keep that in mind. So this morning we're talking about blind spots. Um, And there's that old hymn, isn't there, Amazing Grace, that has the line, I was blind, but now I see. And Christians often talk about spiritual blindness. We are, it's all often a phrase, it's a quite a common phrase of being, being blind and, or having your eyes opened or something like that. It's quite a, a normal phrase that we may have heard before or grown up with in a kind of figurative sense. But it's funny, sometimes we see, but we don't get the full picture. Just like the man who saw people like trees walking around, Sometimes we don't see the full picture. So on your tables, you should have a piece of paper with a cross and a dot on it. It should look like this. So you take your, your pieces of paper. And there's a, I don't know whether it's easy to just get Isaac up to show this, how, how it works, but um, it's an optical illusion that basically basically works by, um, don't do it yet, but listen, listen to the explanation and we'll all do it together. Um, you basically, you put the paper in front of you about this distance in front of you at eye level. And what you do is you take, cover your right eye with one hand. And as you're looking at the paper, as you've got your right eye covered and your left eye can see, your left eye should look at the dot. And now as you move the paper closer or further away, the cross should disappear at a certain point. Has anyone, has anyone managed that? Yeah, Hazel has. Anyone else? What sort of, what sort of distance are you getting? Oh, man. <laughs> it should be about three times the distance between your eyes, as far as I'm aware. So it might be a bit far further away or closer than you, than you think. Can anyone get it? I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna have a go. Yeah, anyone else manage it? Okay, I think if you've not managed it, then then keep trying. You can keep the paper and you can pra- you can practice and maybe next week you do it. But it works the other way as well. If you cover your left eye with the with the right eye and you look at the cross, then the dot should disappear as well. So that's our optical illusion for the day. The point is to notice that we all have a blind spot. Okay? Not just spiritually, but actually, physically, we have a blind spot. 
And the reason that this optical illusion works is because our eyes operate in a strange way. And what happens is we have this thing called the optic nerve that ends in the center of our retina. In other words, we have a blind spot, a physical blind spot. And it's a bit like having the power cord for your TV right in the middle of the TV. If you imagine that for a second, you have to plug it in in the middle. So that bit in the center, you, you wouldn't see the screen, would you? Because that's where the plug goes. And so what happens is your brain tries to compensate for this because we have two eyes. It tries to fill in the gaps between the two and give you a full picture. When you cover in one eye, what happens is the brain has nothing to work with in that center spot. So what it does is it interpolates the image. It tries to figure out what's around surrounding and tries to trick you into thinking that you see clearly. It doesn't give you a spot of, of black where you don't see anything. It kind of sees around it and, and tricks your, your mind into thinking that you've seen something. So that's why when you move it into the exact right position, it sees the paper around the spot and thinks, well, there's, there's just paper there. And so you, you just kind of see what you think is there, but actually you, you miss something. You have a blind spot. I think it's pretty scary that your brain tricks you into thinking that you see everything clearly when in fact you can miss something that's right in front of you. And we all have that. The truth is that you don't see as much of the world as you think. We all have blind spots. And Jesus pointed this out when he spoke about judging others. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, take care of the plank in your own eye before trying to remove the speck from someone else's. In other words, we have these blind spots. We have things that, you know, we may, I remember growing up, um, one thing for me is is that all my friends tried to trip me up on when I was in school was, um, we'll try and make Chris swear. We'll try and get him to say a swear word because they knew that that was one thing for me that I, I didn't swear. And that was kind of one of those things that defined me as a Christian in a way, I guess, at that age. And um, yeah, so they try and trick me. They tell me these, these exotic swear words from different languages and, and say, oh, can you say this word? And I'd say it and they'd be like, ah, you just swore. And I'm like, oh, right, there we go. <laughs> so that that kind of would happen. But then I may think of myself really proudly for not swearing in that sense. But then in another sense, I may go off and do something else that's completely, you know, crazy. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at when he says, take care of the plank in your own eye before trying to remove the speck from someone else's. It's easy to be blinded by things in our own lives and in our character that we just go around thinking we see clearly as our brains fool us into thinking we see clearly. But in fact, we have to remember that we don't see as much of the world as we think. I think we often get into that, um, into that position, especially when you think about um, certain, certain sins that may be like a hot topic for you or for someone that you know where if this particular thing comes up, then then they're really, oh, that's terrible, that's an awful thing, that shouldn't be happening. Um, but then it comes to maybe something else that they maybe struggle with, like, I don't know, it could be something like gluttony or something like that, and, and maybe, well, that's not quite as bad, is it? You know, or maybe it might be, 
you know, something like drinking a bit too much, well, that's not quite as bad, is it? You know, as, as someone who's doing all this stuff over here, what I'm, or gossip, you know, might be, it's not, it's not quite as bad to gossip as it is to have an affair or, or whatever it is. You know, we, we have these certain things where we, we make kind of our own boundaries and our own rules based on what we think is okay in our lives and what we think is permissible in our lives. And then that kind of puts us on this self-righteous pedestal to be able to judge everyone else who's doing all this other stuff. But we have a lot of grace for people that struggle with the same thing that we struggle with. Don't we? It's funny. So this, this morning, I want to give you an exhaustive list of every single blind spot. No, not really. Um, this morning, I want to talk about five blind spots, five things that we can allow in our lives that cause us problems, maybe spiritually, maybe relationally, five things that need to be dealt with if we want to see more than just people like trees walking around. And so, as I say, this is not an exhaustive list. You may read through this list and go, well, none of these are a problem for me. Well, put something in there that is a problem for you and then you can change that one. So the first one we're going to look at, the first blind spot, is rigidity. This is someone who's unteachable. Someone who is stubborn. Someone who isn't able to take teaching or correction. Um, there was a German theologian in the Middle Ages, Miser Eckhart, that once said, be willing to be a learner every single morning. Be willing to be a learner every single morning. Think for a second about a sword. I've got a picture of a sword in our heads. A sword starts life as a lump. And when heat is applied to the metal, the metal becomes malleable. The metal is able to be shaped and molded by the craftsman. I imagine if you were the metal, it would be perhaps a painful process. Not only do you get heated to within an inch of your life, but then you get beaten and hammered and broken. But it's important that the metal is heated and molded so that it can fulfill its purpose. The question is, do you want to go into battle with a lump? Or do you want to go into battle with a sword? I think in a spiritual sense, in a figurative sense for us, we start life, maybe as a lump is a bit harsh, I don't know. <laughs> we... we when we're in Christ, when we are, when we are saved, when we are, um, yeah, in Christ, there's things that God needs to chip off us. There's things that God needs to do in us. There's, there's things that often we need to be taught. We need to be molded and shaped into His purpose, into His will. And, you know, there's often times when we maybe, we maybe find that hard. We maybe find the heat hard we maybe find the hammering and the and the beating kind of hard to deal with but God needs to mold us and shape us into the sword that can go into the battle rather than the lump that's just a heavy weight and pretty useless I, w I was thinking about 
Pharaoh in the um, in the Exodus story. See, after the first couple of plagues, I'd probably have stopped resisting. I probably would have just gone, well, okay, God, I've learned my lesson. You know, you've done, you've, you're definitely doing something here. I don't like it. I'm going to follow what you say and I'm going to do what you tell me to do because I've learned my lesson now. Certainly after the flies, I would have gone, yeah, that's not happening now. It's not, there's, there's only a certain amount of swatting flies that I think any of us can take. And so that would have been it for me, but not Pharaoh. He was so unteachable. He was so rigid that he resisted God to the point that it cost him his firstborn son. And see, I think we're called to be malleable. I think we're called to be teachable, to be the kind of person that when we're challenged, we recognize what God is doing in that moment. And maybe it takes us three or four times to for God to suggest something or drop something into our minds or our hearts before we actually go, oh yeah, God's doing something here. God's reminding me of something. Maybe the point for you in terms of malleability, teachability and that kind of thing is rather than getting to the fourth time, doing it on the first time or the second time. You know, maybe it's that person that you pass in the street that God says, oh, you need to talk to that person. You drop something in your heart. You need to say that. You need to um, you need to speak into that person's life and you think, oh, no, someone else will do it. Or was that really God? We need to be the kind of people who, when challenged, we recognize what God's doing in that moment and we continue to be molded and transformed to his purposes. Because we're called to be learners, not stiff and rigid and stuck in our ways, but to be molded into the person that God calls us to be. Because you don't go into battle with a lump. The second one, it's another fun one. This is really uplifting message this morning. Another fun one is arrogance. Second blind spot is arrogance. So have you ever come across the phrase, you do you? You heard that one. Or perhaps you've ventured into a Burger King on the motorway services somewhere and seen the phrase, have it your way. Or maybe you are young enough to remember the song, My Way. There's a dangerous narcissistic trend towards self, isn't there? Even the trends um, in social media to, at, this, at this moment are towards your story, right? There's a, there's a growing trend towards putting up two or three seconds of your life here and there so that other people can see it and go, oh, Chris is walking down by the beach. Oh, now he's gone into a chip shop. No, he's not. He's not. That's not something that Chris would do. <laughs> Maybe. Um, they encourage people to show a couple, couple of seconds of what's going on in their day. And all these things feed this notion that, that I am the most important thing. I'm the most important person in this room. I am, you know, all that kind of, all that kind of thing. And, and I think as well, it's, it's important to note that we, we like to put our best self out there. You know, when you see people taking selfies, they don't just, don't just grab their phone and take one. And however they look at that moment, that's, that's what gets put out there onto the world. 
they take the best one that they can, usually from the higher angle because it's where the best light's coming in from here and the, the angle reduces the, the fat underneath your chin and makes you look better. And, uh, and then you go through all these filters and it makes your skin all fancy and or makes you look like a dog for some reason. Um, these things are not necessarily bad things. And when we think about our importance, we are important to God, but the sense of self-importance, arrogance, needs to be put aside in the kingdom of God. It's interesting that we're called to die to self. When we talk about the Bible being relevant and people say, oh, God's not relevant these days and that kind of stuff. How relevant and how countercultural is it that in a world of selfies, we're called to die to self, to serve rather than to be served, to love with self-giving sacrifice. Philippians 2 verse 3 says to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility to value others above ourselves. I mean, that just blows me away. In humility, value others above ourselves. It's so countercultural. Not alongside yourself, not on that same level, or that often thought that we have, like, once I get everything sorted in my life, you know, once I've got my car with my double garage and this and that and my car with a double garage, house with a double garage, you don't have a car with a double garage. It's a really strange thought. Um, once I've got my house with a double garage and two cars to go in there and one out on the road, um, or whatever it is, once I've got everything sorted out in my life, then I might help. Then I might do something. Then I might step out and help others. But in fact, we're called to put aside arrogance and to replace it with humility. Because in the kingdom of God, there's no room for my way. There's only room for God's way. And God's way calls us to care for one another. We get that image from, um, from the communion story of, you know, we're all one body because we all share in one bread. And Paul talks about in Galatians, there's no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free, male and female, because we're all one in the kingdom of God. There's a kind of level playing field, equality thing that's going on. I think nothing disarms arrogance like seeing the humanity in someone who is supposedly lower than ourselves. That in society we say this person's lower down, you know, that's a lower class or a higher class or whatever. When you see the humanity in that person, it disarms arrogance. In calling that person a brother or a sister, in being slow to speak and quick to listen. I think if we set aside our own agenda of, and this notion of looking out for number one um, and begin to take the time to listen to others, we might begin to experience what it's like to humble ourselves. I think a good example for me of this is, is the night shelter. We don't do the night shelter out of kind of philanthropy, but out of love for our brothers and sisters. Because it's valuing others above ourselves, not, not that idea of because I'm higher, because I'm 
kind of worth more, then I can help. I can do something. But actually, love for humans, love for humanity, love for our brothers and sisters, love for our neighbor is what we're called to. In, in a humble, self-giving sense. Paul goes on in Philippians to give us this example of Jesus and his sacrifice as the ultimate expression of humility. That he gave up everything that he was, all his entitlement, all his glory, all his power, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, sacrificed his position to give in humility, ultimately giving his life so that we might live. And that's why Paul goes on in Philippians to talk about how he counts everything as worthless for the sake of knowing Jesus. See, nothing this world can offer truly counts. Yet how often do we live and act as though it does? The third one, we're racing through, we'll get there, is isolation. You know, I think this is a bit similar to arrogance, but almost in a kind of self-deprecating way. It's like like kind of the opposite, but kind of the same at the same time, if that makes sense. Right in the beginning of the Bible, in the creation account, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. We're called into community. Ultimately, that goes in the same way. It's not good for women to be alone as well. But woman wasn't around at that point, so that's why, why he kind of said that. Um, we, we're called into community. The word church in the Greek, ecclesia, literally means called out ones, ones who've been called out into something that's bigger than themselves. It, it's a word which refers specifically to a group of people called somehow to live and experience life with one another. So it's not just that element of being called out from our old life into a new life with Jesus. It's not just that element of like living with Jesus as my personal savior and it's all introspective. It's all kind of like about me and, and my relationship with God. We're called out into a horizontal relationship with each other as well. Yet oftentimes we can cut ourselves off. And it may be for many reasons. It may be, well, you know, I've, I've done this or done that or done the other. And I, I don't feel like I'm the kind of person who's worthy to go and worship with everyone this week. Well, that's the point when you need to be doing that more than ever. Because that's the point when, as a life-giving, loving community, we build each other up and support and encourage each other. It might be something a bit more like, well... You know, I'm introverted or I enjoy my own company or I don't want to be around too many people or, you know, or maybe you don't want others knowing your business or maybe a whole raft of other excuses that we, we kind of come up with. Well, Hebrews 10 verse 25 tells us to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but to spur each other on in love and good deeds it's interesting that that's the counterpoint, isn't it? Spur each other on in love and good deeds is the counterpoint to not giving up meeting together. In other words, if we give up meeting together, who's going to spur us on in love and good deeds? How are we going to spur other people on in those things? 
if we're not meeting with each other, then and we're kind of like focusing in on ourselves, then you get into this downward spiral, don't you? You probably heard the story about how geese travel in their V formation. It's kind of like a teamwork poster that's that's up probably in most bosses' offices across the world. Um, maybe maybe in the 80s it was, I don't know. Um, but by traveling in this way in a community, they actually provide extra lift for the birds that are traveling with them. And the the kind of research they've done on that is that they actually lighten the load. It enables them to travel 70% further as a team than they would if they were on their own. So how relevant is that for us? We're called in Galatians 6 verse 2 to bear one another's burdens. But how often can we actually say that we do that? How often can we say that we're more like into isolation than we're into bearing each other's burdens? And not in the sense of gossip, not in the sense of telling everyone what's going on in each other's lives and the intricate details of kind of stuff that's that you know does there is some stuff that needs to be kept to yourself you know don't hear me don't hear what i'm not saying on that but we're called to bear one another's burdens and that's difficult to do if we isolate ourselves and if we don't share what's going on because the thing is in christ we are brothers and sisters and we're joined in him and called to live as a life-giving community Okay, we're ready for number four. The fourth blind spot is negativity. This is a fun one. So I think it's one of those things that can quickly stifle community. It can quickly cause us to long for isolation and cutting ourselves off because these people are not people I want to be around. Have you ever spent time with a really negative person? If you've not, then I'm sorry to say, that it might be you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so have a think. Um, you don't come away generally from a conversation with someone who's really negative thinking, oh, I just feel so much better. I feel like I just I could go for days. They just made me feel fantastic. I just want to... You know what? I can't wait to spend time with that person again next time I see them because it's just going to be so much fun. Sure, there's a little bit of of negativity that can feel like you're kind of in this in this kind of fringe group for a while, and you feel like, oh, I'm going to get into this, or we're going to going to say, oh, this is going on. Have you have you heard what they're doing? Oh, it's so much so much fun for like a little bit, and then it kind of wears on you a bit, doesn't it? And um, after you've kind of got in on the act, kind of bashing and speaking about the mistakes that a person made or a certain person did in this area, we have this whole media industry that's built upon negativity, that's built upon tearing people down. And there's an element that you can think, well, it's in our nature to be negative, right? Well, actually, wrong. The, the reality is that we decide how we respond in any situation. And interestingly, they've been doing some research kind of um, 
in the whole area of neurology and brain science and that kind of stuff. And how we decide to respond in a given situation begins to program our future behavior through a process called neuroplasticity, which is a fun word to say. And you see how our brain actively begins to rewire itself when we begin to think and declare positively rather than negatively. Our brain begins to make new neurological pathways to certain pleasure centers and that kind of stuff that's, that's within our brain that, that actually begins to rewire ourselves. That when we think positively, we declare positivity over our lives as opposed to negativity. Then positivity begins to be our new normal, begins to be our new nature. Might sound weird, but it's genuinely true. Like, so often we've trained ourselves to think negatively and to react negatively that it becomes our nature. But you know what you can do is change your nature. That's the whole point of, of this kind of understanding of neuroplasticity is, is what is normal for you isn't actually necessarily your nature but maybe something that you've trained yourselves in. And I, I know that doesn't go across the board, but they're doing all sorts of research into, into helping with like chronic long-term illness through kind of rewiring your brain in terms of thought and all that kind of stuff. It's crazy, but in a good way. Interestingly, God has something to say about that. Romans 12 verse 2 tells us to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You know, when you're transformed by the renewing of your minds, it actually has a physical difference on your brain. It actually changes the way that you begin to think. And you're not kind of fooling yourself into saying something positive when you really feel negative. You're actually changing and molding and shaping the way that your brain's working and thinking and responding. So begin to look for the positive. Begin to think, how can I build someone up with my words? with my actions rather than constantly tearing them down like they used to all the time. Perhaps then they'll start to see the Jesus that you talk about as someone who actually influences your life, who actually changes the way that you live, who actually changes the way that you think. And rather than saying, well, this, this God's not relevant. Hold on a minute. He's done something in your life. You are now, you used to be like this, but now you're like this. What's changed? What's happened? What's, tell me about the story. Tell me why, why are you positive when you used to be so negative? What's going on? What a testimony that would be. What does Paul tell us to do in Philippians again, verse eight? He tells us to focus on the things that are pure, good, praiseworthy, true, noble, right, and lovely. Perhaps that's a challenge for us today. And our last one, our last spiritual blind spot is a fence. Not the kind of fence that Mark knows much about. Mark's a builder. Um, But offense. This is a big one. I think it touches a nerve because we feel like we have the right to be offended. 
the truth is that some of us like to be offended. We don't want to admit that. And maybe we don't want to admit that to ourselves, but we like to be offended. We take offense at something and often we kind of have this kind of self-righteous feeling like, no, they said this and it's right for my, my reaction is right to be offended and upset by that. And, and you know, you, I can understand where that comes from. I really can. Someone may say something that makes fun of, fun of Christians. Someone may say something that makes fun of your family or makes light of a situation that's really profound and deeply hurtful to you. And there's all sorts of emotions that are involved. And so we can easily kind of arch our backs like a scared cat and, and get on the defensive and say how offensive and horrible that person is. I can't believe they did this. I can't believe that they, they think that about me or they said that about my daughter or, you know, or anything like that. The thing is that you don't have to be offended. Offense is a choice. Offense is something that's taken rather than given. And now, whether someone means to give offense or not, we can choose whether we take that from them. Just like a gift, this is like a bad gift rather than a good one. But just like if I was to give offer Irene a gift, you could take that from me or you could say, no, thanks, I don't want it. And as much as I insisted, I couldn't make you take that from me. In the same way, if I say something offensive to someone or someone says something offensive to me, whether it's meant, whether it's intended or not, I can choose to take that on board. I can choose to allow that to affect my life and affect me how I carry on or I can choose to let it go. And now I'm not saying that there are, there are situations where that's not hard, you know, and I'm not saying that you are not in the right to feel offended in that moment. But you choose how you carry that forward. You choose how you live with that because it does have a negative effect on you. See, choosing to be offended is the issue. And again, it harks back to that sense of ego and almost self-importance and self-righteousness and arrogance and all that kind of stuff. It, it kind of ties all in together. If you think about being a new creation in Christ, you can't offend a dead man. You're a new creation. You're no longer that old person. And how you choose to react when someone means offence or when they don't reveals how much you've learned to forgive. Jesus could have been so offended on the cross. What have these people done to me? You know, what right do they do they know who I am? What right have they got to do this to me? To put me up on a cross? What right have they got to do that? Yet what was his response? was to speak forgiveness over those who were killing him. Yet often our first response is to fight against what the world is doing. You ever heard of, of, people, of Christians standing up for God's morality? You know, this is a Christian country and we need to be fighting for Christian values and, and this and that and the other. And, 
morals have gone down the toilet and or whatever phrase you people may <laughs> that's that's probably not a common one is it i don't know um whatever phrase people are coming up with the the interesting thought is god's big enough to fight his own battles you ever thought that that when we give in to offense what we're actually saying is no i don't believe god that you're on the throne i don't believe that you're big enough to fight your own battles. I don't believe that your kingdom reigns. I believe you need me to stand up and defend you. I believe you need me to put that person in their place. Because you know the greatest way of evangelizing, the greatest mission tactic is to argue people and shout them down, right? It's not, by the way. I don't know anyone who I've met who's come into the kingdom of God because they've been argued into it. See, of course it's our right to be offended, but it's a self-destructive right. It's our right to go out and get blind drunk. It's our right to go and smoke until we get lung cancer and die. It's our right to do those things. It's not necessarily a good thing for us to be spending our time doing. In the same way that it's our right to get offended. It doesn't mean you have to do it. It's a choice. And in fact, these spiritual blind spots, all of them are issues because they're all self-destructive. And the lie that they tell us is that there's still a fleshy self that needs to be brought down a peg or two. The reality is, though, that the truth, the truth is that God is on the throne and that he always will be. He has won the victory in Christ. That's done. That's finished. When he said it is finished on the cross, he meant that it's finished. And so we're called to live by the Spirit. We're not called to conform any longer to the patterns of this world as though the sinful self is still alive. We're called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how does that come about? It comes about by submitting to the Spirit of God. By looking at these things and thinking, oh yeah, there's an area that I need to be chiseled down. There's an area that I need to, I'm in the fire and God's doing something and he's molding me and he's shaping me into what he wants me to be. Allowing ourselves to be transformed more and more into his likeness. We, I think we need to realize that we don't see as much of the world as we think. Just as with the, the little example at the start shows us, we don't see as much of the world as we think. And when we begin to step aside and allow God to remove these obstacles from our view, we begin to be transformed more and more into his likeness. Just like the man who saw people like trees walking around. Maybe we need that second touch from Jesus so that we can see clearly. Maybe we need God to move and work in our lives so that we can, again, we're not going around seeing men, people like men, people like trees walking around, but we're seeing clearly. We're seeing the world as God sees it. We're seeing his kingdom reign. We're seeing his glory and his presence on earth. 
Would you stand with me, please, if you're able, and we'll we'll close in song together. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church. One church, passionately loving God and people, in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news, or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.